Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. Now, my name is Roshan Chickermain, and I'm joined here with our co-host. I'm Jenna Glatzer. Our guest today is John Vallier-Douglas. John is the Associate Director at Seattle Genetics, now called CGen, a biotechnology company that develops and commercializes therapies for the treatment of cancer in the United States and internationally. CGen is most well known for developing antibody drug conjugates, a therapeutic modality that is quickly gaining prominence, particularly for their use as targeted cancer therapies. For example, their lead product, Brintuximab Vodotin, is approved in the U.S. to treat specific types of lymphomas and is composed of a CD30 targeting antibody that is covalently linked to a small molecule agent that arrests cell division. Prior to joining Seattle Genetics, or CGen, John worked in R&D groups at Amgen and Corexa and has accumulated 21 years of industry experience to date. John, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Hi, thank you for having me. My, my pleasure, Roshan, Jenna. Uh, it's nice to meet you and it's nice to take part in this podcast. So before we get into your background, could you briefly introduce us to your work at Seattle Genetics? Sure. So um, I'm on the development side uh, in the spectrum of research to development to manufacturing and commercialization. So essentially in development, we're involved with taking constructs and molecules uh, from research and then figuring out how to scale them up and uh, manufacture them in significant quantities such that we can support clinical trials. Um, so um, a lot of what the work that we do in development involves um, analytical testing and uh, determination of, of product quality attributes, things like that. And so I'm uh, part of the analytical sciences department within development. And so um, I run a core mass spectrometry group within the analytical sciences group. And so that uh, is certainly is my focus. We have a group of about uh, seven individuals and all of these people have uh, you know, fairly extensive mass spectrometry uh, background and experience, but the types of work that they're doing is all geared towards more development applications as opposed to research applications. You initially started your biotech career right outside of college. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. So um, I was actually, uh, I ended up kind of being one of those students that stays in college for a pretty significant period of time. So I I accumulated some degrees in um, economics and political science. And then, um, you know, I always had a passion for, um, you know, kind of nutrition and, and uh, things like that. And, uh, you know, I did sports and played sports and stuff. And so it was sort of a, a, a passion of mine. And, I, you know, I got very interested in, in biochemistry and also decided I didn't want to go to law school. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> it was sort of an obvious uh, a choice at that point. I, I ended up getting a BS in biochemistry and then graduating and going straight into uh, industry. Um, I was in my later 20s at that point. So, um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to just get out in the world and, and, and start working. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's sort of the how that evolved. Why biotechnology, though? Because you mentioned you have some pretty diverse interests. So is it because you were good at science or you wanted to you know, develop drugs eventually? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think that there's something 
um, was uh, intrinsically appealing about just um, biochemistry, molecular biology, cellular biology, things like that, especially more on molecular biology, biochemistry side. And so really, if that if that is kind of what's the direction you're being pulled in, um, that does sort of then also predispose you for to looking at biotech as a, as a career path. Yeah. So you started at Corixa, then you moved to Amgen and finally Seattle Genetics, where you are today. What drew you to each of those three companies? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, while it's worth noting, I started at Corixa, it was not a smooth start. So, um, you know, when I got out of college, you know, I did a lot of temping. Um, I worked at um, uh, various places. Um, at one point, I was cleaning rat cages at our at our um, animal facility at, at Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center. Uh, I also did some some a few months in a um, chemical synthesis lab where we weighed out compounds uh, in order to make chemical libraries that were then packaged and sold to biotechnology companies for screening. So um, at the end of the day, you know, it was uh, just a process of continuing to um, look for you know opportunities, and I finally got an opportunity at Carixa. And I was hired into a lab that was being run by a, a gentleman named Ronald Hendrickson, who had graduated from the Don Hunt lab um, and uh, uh, was a really uh, just a, a whiz mass spectrometer. And um, I was fortunate that, that he uh, hired me and, and I started to work for him for several years, actually. So, you know, th that's kind of the way it evolved. And so I, I guess getting into industry, um, I had no thought or or. Um, or a special interest in mass spectrometry at all. Um, it just so happened I got, I was fortunate to have gotten hired into the lab that I did. And then I kind of, um, well, you know, I wouldn't say I fell in love with it, but um, I, I found it really intriguing and interesting. And then eventually I did fall in love with it. Um, I also really, you know, was interested in molecular biology and, and um, just pure, you know, aspects of biochemistry. Uh, but mass spectrometry was, was a, a window into all of those. And so it was really uh, appealing as something to, to delve into further. Yeah, I think that's a sentiment that a lot of people can connect to. I know certainly in grad school, there have been techniques that have not been my favorite or even in undergrad, but exactly what you said, they kind of provide this window of opportunity into doing something more advanced that does align with your vision. Yeah, so yeah. It's always good to hear that. <laughs> so I think this is, I think this is so beautiful. Um, as we all know, um, the U.S. capitalist econ economic structure, it's a system that rewards those who apply value-added skills to solve problems for society. Um, so I think one of the most important things that you can do when you're in a technical role or you're a PhD or a postdoc is to acquire and nurture some of these value-added skills um, and this is something that you've done for uh, mass spectrometry um, and its applications to developing therapeutics. When you joined Carixa as a junior level scientist and you had this mentor um, who was well-versed in mass spectrometry, were you thinking that, man, if I got really, really good at this technique, um, I could would eventually be the go-to person in this group for people that wanted to use this very useful thing, um, and I can really leverage this skill into uh, my your career as an early scientist, and then uh, using that to develop as a more senior scientist uh, later on. 
<laughs> yeah, well, the implication is, did I have a plan, right? Yes. And, 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 <laughs> and no, I did not have a plan. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, per, you know, perhaps it's a failure of imagination on my part, but um, honestly, um, you know, my most of my work at Carixa was involved in making sure I did a good job continuing to learn and try to get better day in and day out. Um, and, and to be fair, you know, I didn't do a lot of mass spectrometry at Carixa. Um, my boss relied on me to learn and understand um, protein separation techniques, protein isolation techniques. So I did immunoprecipitations. I did all kinds of chromatographic experiments to uh, help to um, further enrich populations of antigens and proteins that then would be analyzed by mass spec. You know, in, in, in the, you know, in between, I guess, um, major efforts, you know, I, I, I did get some time on, on the mass spec and I did do a little bit of learning. Um, but it was not in, initially like a thought that, you know, I'm, I'm looking to develop my skills and build my skills in mass spectrometry. And in fact, you know, if I, if I look on it, uh, in the, through the, through the benefit of hindsight, those protein purification and protein analysis and manipulation skills that I learned early in my career, were immensely important. And um, I think that um, it really paved the way for a lot of the success that I had uh, in my, my later uh, later jobs, uh, you know, particularly at Amgen, where you, know, you had people with pure mass spectrometry knowledge and experiment, experience, but that, that didn't necessarily have a sophisticated level of protein manipulation skills. Yeah. So you were clearly like fulfilling a niche for them. I'm curious, what led you to eventually transition over to Amgen? Well, um, so I guess I guess to f- fully contextualize that, I would need to explain the, the Seattle uh, biotechnology environment, which Please? is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I know nothing about this. I, yeah, I've well, lived under, I'm fully it's, it's, East Coaster, so. <laughs> oh, we are yeah. so proud on, as West Coasters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well-represented podcast. <laughs> there you go. Good deal. Good deal. So it's perpetually on the cusp of critical mass, but but often you know falling just short. And so what we see is is that there's this history of companies that that grow to a particular size and then get bought out or shut down. And you know, classic examples are Immunex, which was acquired by Amgen, and then ultimately you know Amgen. Um, consolidated on, um, Calif- you know, in at West Coast, California, as well as East Coast, right? Um, similarly, there's, there's other companies which have gotten an approved product and then subsequently been bought out. So anyway, uh, to, to get back to my, my story here, um, Carixa was, it was an interesting story because we actually bought uh, another company with a, um, with a, an early generation um, radionuclide-based ADC. And, um, and it, it, you know, from, it was quite effective. Um, and um, at the same time, I think that there was some, as commercialization uh, opportunity, I think it may have, have been sort of tough to make it work uh, for various reasons. And so, you know, Cricks eventually just ran out of money. And so it, the writing was definitely on the wall. And um, uh, we had gone through a layoff well, actually, I was at ASMS, and my my wife had called me up and told and informed me that the company had laid off a third of their workforce, 
and uh, and so I was having lunch with my boss later that that uh, that day, and so it was on me to inform my boss that. Our oh my God. Through, you know? <laughs> and the, but the, but I was assured, you know, through through other people at the company that we both still had jobs, and um, and so from that point, you know, it kind of it was sort of obvious that the writing was on the wall, and that's when I began looking towards other other jobs, and so I specifically chose Amgen because uh, I knew that there was a mass spectrometry group in development that was doing really great work. I'd been told that they were doing really great work. And so I actually um, got a phone number from the guy that ran that group and I, and I cold called him and said I was looking for a job. And, uh, you know, um, <laughs> you know, these things ha happen about as <laughs> gracefully as you can imagine, <laughs> but eventually I got I got an interview and 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 I got hired into that group. Yeah. So just to be clear, it was biologics, like antibody-based biologics. You were working on at Carixa and then also at Amgen. Carixa had multiple platforms. Ultimately, it was um, ultimately we were focused on commercializing a um, uh, a ADC uh, is actually a, a, with with in this case the drug was a radionuclide. But but we had a lot of things that were potential, you know, that we were pushing through as 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 different types of therapies. Yeah. So what was your experience like in moving from um, maybe a smaller company, Carixa, than to Amgen? Um, was there a major change in the work pace and the way um, uh, development teams work together, so on and so forth? Yeah. You know, uh, I think. You know, in, in at Crixa, so I was part of a more of a research-based team that then that then you know as we acquired that that um, product, which was on the cusp of going commercial, you know we became a, a more of a development team. And so I think you know then going to Amgen, where you know Amgen is is particularly known as having a really you know um, impressive and um, uh, advanced you know, development and manufacturing, you know, um, you, you know, th that's, that's really where they, they, they excel, you know, they can really, they're really good at taking molecules and, and um, developing them into, into commercial therapies. So, you know, there was certainly a, a level of professionalization that I experienced at Amgen that was, um, that, that was, you know, it was pretty, pretty advanced and pretty high level. Um, the first kind of shock is, is that you walk into a, into a lab that has, you know, nine mass spectrometers and they're all basically, uh, you know, walk up instruments, you know, and so from a, and so from a sort of a, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that blew my mind right there. And just that, like, you know, it was expected that, you know, nobody was going to hold your hand, but that you were going to be expected to figure out how to run these things. And, um, and that was a, a really a, a very cool experience. Yeah, so actually, maybe to um, provide a little bit more context here, how generally is mass spectrometry applied to drug development? Yeah, um, well, there's certain things that you need to do um, it, it, that utilize mass spectrometry in order to, uh, um, in order to progress things through um, to a regulatory submission for a phase one, phase one regulatory submission, you know, and these are... Um, Things like uh, elucidation of the of the structure of the biotherapeutic. So this involves mass spectrometry to confirm the molar mass. It invo also involves um, cataloging um, 
the heterogeneity of the biotherapeutic. And so heterogeneity for you know folks that are not in, in the in the community is just PTMs and chemical modifications, right? So that's performing peptide maps and making sure that you have really good methodologies and instrumentation in place, making sure your peptide maps are highly, highly reproducible, uh, that you're not missing anything. Um, and then those, those uh, product quality findings um, get um, summarized in a uh, regulatory submission called an investigational new drug filing, IND. So it's basically uh, a lot of intact molecule um, um, and peptide map analysis. Now within that, there's a lot of um, sort of more niche type workflows that occur. And so, you know, there are proteomics applications that are carried out in development in which mass spectrometry can be used to track populations of, um, of host cell proteins that might co-purify co with your biotherapeutic. Those are very challenging experiments to execute because typically the, the analyte which that you're trying to identify, which is the co-purifying uh, host protein, is at many, many orders of magnitude lower concentration than, than, the, uh, than the therapeutic. So, so that's challenging. It, it really um, stresses the, the um, dynamic range of the techniques and the approaches that you, that the, you use. Um, we also have other things called sequence variant analysis, which involves using what in the old days would have been a mascot error tolerant type search to look for amino acid substitutions that occur in, you know, low to, you know, low levels of, uh, on the protein backbone. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a, a good mix of sort of standard workhorse assays and then highly technical um, complex assays that are, that are challenging. And these sorts of assays are developed in the preclinical stage, applied to development, and then are they later applied to manufacturing for um, quality control of the product that's going out to um, commercial? Yeah, um, uh, generally not in manufacturing. Um, and so I, I say generally because, you know, there's a little bit of a caveat that, that needs to be stated, and that is that there is a... Um, that there is a trend within the community um, to assess the potential for mass spectrometry peptide map as being a quality control release assay. And so um, I think that that was proposed in 2012 to 2013 by, by Rich Rogers. Uh, and there's a, there's a paper in MAPS that, that, that describes um, that, that approach and how one would, would do that. Um, and there's been, so as a consequence, there's sprung up some industry consortia uh, that deal particularly with that topic. And there are ongoing discussions also with, with the FDA on, on you know, how, how, what that might look like, how that might emerge. Um, but generally, no, right now, um, all mass spec stays in development. Um, if, however, you can imagine that if you have a therapeutic that has something which is a, you know, perhaps it's a chemical degradation that impacts activity, and you need to control that on release. Then you might specific, you might consider a specific uh, peptide map just monitoring one attribute, or a specific mass spec-based assay that just monitors one attribute. But generally, if you can monitor that attribute with another assay that's simpler, more economical, um, that's going to be what you do. Because you know, manufacturing occurs worldwide. 
Um, you can imagine that there's different capacity and capability to support complicated release assays in various parts of the world where you might want to manufacture and, and distribute biotherapeutics. And so you also which have something which is really unique, I think, for an industry scientist. It's you have an extensive publishing record, um, not only from your time at Amgen, but also now continuing through to Seattle Genetics. And we'll talk more about that later. But I was wondering, can you briefly describe sort of how industry publishing works? Or I guess a better way to phrase that is how publishing within industry works? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, it uh, so I guess the thing I would say is, is that um, generally, you know, the, the decision to, you know, um, sort of orient your career towards a, you know, publishing things and um, is, is an individual career choice. And so, you know, it's, it's work, right? Uh, it's going to require um, a, a level of attention and, and work that, that may or may not be conducive to developing your career along the conventional path. And so you have to understand that there's not a one-to-one, you know, correlation with I'm going to publish this and then that's going to equal career success, right? So, so the first thing I would say is, is, is uh, you know, is um, do it because y- you are intrinsically motivated to do it. And um, so uh, I was ex- extremely motivated to do it. Um, my, my, my goal in, in much of my early career was to, to be the best characterization scientist I could, I could possibly be. And part of that, you know, is it's the thrill of discovering new things and seeing things that nobody has ever seen before. And the main uh, thing involved with um, publishing is, is that it, it's going to depend, it's highly variable um, with what you're working on. If you are working on something that involves um, intellectual property, um, those concerns are always in industry going to trump any particular external communication interest you might have. And so, you know, that's just a fact of life um, and you um, should uh, adjust, right? <laughs> that's, that's otherwise going into academia, <laughs> but um, you, you know, and uh, where you will have more, more um, um, latitude to publish. So then with, within that, um, my general strategy was to always have like three or four irons in the fire, right? I mean, you go through and, and you're going through your day, your week, your month, your year, and you, you sort of see interesting things and, and maybe it's in your day-to-day work. Maybe it's, you know, things from, you know, other observations or something you've culled from the literature and, and you just have to think about this and it has to be an active process where you're always, you know, kind of like coming up with, all right, this, this is something that's interesting. This needs exploration. This could potentially be, you know, um, grist for a publication. And so I would try to, I try to maintain three or four of those at any one time. And so, you know, it was sort of a little bit of a, of a balancing process of like, well, which one is the most impactful and the most likely, you know, and oftentimes those things are, are not the same, you know, something high impact and very difficult or unlikely to pan out is different than something that's lower impact, but, but, you know, maybe more of a slam dunk. Um, and from there, it's just, you know, following through. Um, I will say things to, to emphasize are um, writing and communication. Um, you know, uh, publication, it's, look, it's, it's 50, 50% at least 
you know, communication as well as, you know, the ability to go in and, and, and think of the right and execute the right experiment. Um, and so, um, and, and that just comes with woodshedding and, uh, and, and doing it right. Yeah, no. And it's, it's a great point too. And it's, it's definitely something that's a lesson for everyone, regardless of whether you work in an industry R and D setting or you are in traditional academia, like you yeah. have to, if you can plan out sort of your experiments and like you said, what is going to be the most high impact versus what's going to be the most like, you know, maybe not high impact, but super reliable, definitely scientifically sound, um, slam dunk. That's, that's important to keep in mind as people go through their careers. And yeah. It's exciting to hear, you know, how passionate you are about it too. It really oh, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, at the time and, and, you know, I still am, um, but obviously I'm not in the lab anymore. So, you know, I, I, I tend to exercise that passion through my, my, <laughs> my group. But, um, but, you know, at the time, you know, it was, um, it was the only thing I was really, you know, 100% focused on. And, um, you know, I, it, it made, it made work so much fun. Uh, it made going into work fun. I wanted to stay, I wanted to go back in and, uh, and, and career path promotion was, was not a factor. I, it was not anything I, I cared about. It was, I wanted to publish and I, and, you know, um, it was something that I intrinsically felt very motivated to do. So that, that was, that was, and I think that that's the key. So, if it's in you to, to, to want to do it, um, then by all means, but don't, but don't have any illusions that it, it's going to open, you know, a ton of doors for you. I mean, it will open doors, but you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know if it pans out from a effort reward standpoint. Yeah. was part of your motivation to publish because you, as you mentioned, if you publish an industry, it's really something that you have to take on yourself was part of your motivation in doing that to connect to the broader mass spec community and idea sharing. Yeah. In, in a sense it was, you know, um, I think, I think it was, it was, uh, you know, a little bit the idea that um, I have things that I can contribute here. Um, and, and in contribution um, in the broader community, you know, it, it relies on credibility, right? I mean, it's not, you're not going to, you're not going to get people's ears um, without them understanding some aspect of what you do and that credibility then you gain through external publication. So, so in a sense, yes, there is a connection there. Yeah. Right. So now moving to your experience with uh, Seattle genetics, you're the associate director there. Um, uh, You haven't done a PhD or a postdoc, but as you mentioned, you laid a lot of I mean, you did, you put in a lot of work to uh, build up your skills, um, publish a lot of uh, papers, and you've also, I'm sure, were a key contributor on many projects at your time at Corksa and at Amgen. Um, but is it common or is it more rare to see uh, those who don't have PhD or a postdoc at the director level? Uh, it, it tends to be pretty rare. Um... It's not, it's definitely not unheard of. Um, and it's a, it, it's a spectrum and it's going to depend on two things. Number one is, um, is the farther away you get from like basic, basic research. It seems, it seems that the, the need um, for, I mean, I guess I would put this as the need for credentials 
lessons. Um, so if you're able to, to compellingly demonstrate what you can bring to the table, uh, then, you know, it's, then that's good. Uh, and so, you know, one of those ways of demonstrating that is through a degree. Another way of demonstrating that is through a body of work that you have um, authored and built up over the years and, and reputation in the external community. So, you know, there's, there's more than one way to, to, to get to that ultimate outcome. As you move closer to, um, you know, develop, from development and into manufacturing and quality control and things like that, yeah, it's absolutely, you see um, lots of folks that, you know, rise to the director level and above. Um, and, you know, they're, they're exceptionally talented people and um, have risen on the merits of, you know, their contributions, the work they do, the teams they build and, 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 and these types of things. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So you're saying that at a certain point, um, it's just a matter of how much value do you add? Yeah. And, 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 you know, being able to, um, being able to demonstrate that, right. You know, I mean, you, you know, you may believe you can contribute a lot of value, but, but if there's no, if, if you have no, um, you know, particularly visible arguments to back that up, then I mean, that's not, that's not going to be productive. Right. So Seattle Genetics, well known for antibody drug conjugates, and you also have some work from uh, prior companies and experience with antibody drug conjugates. Could you just briefly explain what those are? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, an antibody drug conjugate is, I think, just a, a is just a weaponized antibody, right? And one of the key aspects of antibodies is the idea of specificity and that you can intercede and potentially shut down or impact a tissue or tumor type that expresses a particular protein that's recognized by the antibody. So um, antibodies themselves can be therapeutic, um, but uh, the primary... Um, the, the primary, I think, uh, advancement or, or wrinkle on antibody-based therapies with antibody drug conjugates is that we try to, uh, to weaponize the antibody um, with addition of um, chemical warheads. And, uh, you know, these can be isolated from, you know, multiple, you know, natural compounds um, and can work on a variety of mechanisms for arresting cellular division, cellular function. Um, but that's that seems to that's a key component of all antibody drug conjugates, and they're all and and frankly also the 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 warhead, uh, the, the drug linker itself can be attached to the antibody in multiple different ways, and and there's plenty of examples uh, in the literature and in and in um, clinical trials and commercial products that that you know you can look to to understand more about that. So when I was doing some background research, because I. I don't work in the cancer space. Um, I didn't realize these were initially proposed in like early 1900 by Paul yeah. Ehrlich. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. Magic bullets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just slightly ahead of his time, wasn't he? <laughs> what? Yeah. Sorry. He was just slightly ahead of his time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, when I was researching it, I saw, you know, the first drug came on the market about 100 years later in 2000. And, but, so far, traditionally, it's been used in this in oncology for solid and some hematological tumors. Um, but do you see ADCs or antibody drug conjugates being expanded into other therapeutic arenas? 
Yeah, I probably um, can't comment on that. Um, mostly just because I don't have enough awareness, really, of, of where the potential uh, unmet medical need uh, would exist uh, to go into. Um, I would also say that, um, you know, antibody drug conjugate based therapies, um, you know, are, are a uh, important uh, and evolving part of you know, the war on cancer and there are plenty of, and, you know, it's, I think, uh, what we're looking to do, you know, is, is fundamentally as a company, um, is to, uh, is to improve the life of patients. Right. And, um, you know, antibody drug conjugates are a way to do that. Um, uh, there are other modalities and approaches out there as well. And we're primarily focused on patients and, um, so I think, well, you know, I don't think I'm taking any liberties here. Um, that's the primary focus with Seattle genetics. It's focus on improving lives of cancer patients, not necessarily with antibody drug conjugates. So I'm interested in what it takes to be an effective technical group leader, um, uh, moving from, uh, a junior science back in the day, now as associate director, you're managing uh, more teams. How do you stay on the same page with the teams that you manage um, without sort of being in meetings all day? How do you do that? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, the the publication background and the individual contributor background does not, does not predispose you to being a group leader, you know. Um, that's a separate set of skills. And, um, and it took me a while to uh, to really to sort of adjust to that 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 new role. Um, so you know, I think um, I don't know that I, I don't know that there's one answer in particular. Um, but I I think a key thing is is that you know in going from an individual contributor um, slash you know expert whatever um, to, a, a technical group leader, you know, you have to put people first, you have to put your people first. Um, you have to build teamwork and cohesiveness and, um, and cooperation. You know, those are, I, I can't stress enough the importance of that. Um, you also have to understand, you know, the overall, you know, from the perspective of you as a group leader, where does your group sit within the enterprise? And, understand also that success of the enterprise does not equal success of your group or vice versa. And so to the extent that you, um, you view those two as, as the same, um, you know, that's not, I, I, I think that that's not necessarily good. So, um, you know, it's that, and that comes down to then also how, how do you, how do you externally manage expectations of your group and, and the um, overall, um, you know, relationship of your group to other departments, you know, and, and a key factor of that is, you know, that, you know, you are, you are essentially in the service business, right? You're, you're providing data information that is hopefully actionable and can be acted upon by folks doing other things manufacturing, you know, process development, you know, understanding the best manufacturing process to go forward with. Uh, so um, you are not the center of the universe. Um, understand that, know that. Um, your clients, the folks that are consuming your data, don't care about ionization efficiency and, uh, you know, and mass spectral, you know, mass spectral intricacies, you know, chunk information, deliver to them in bite-sized 
you know, give them what they need to do their work. And if you can think about it from that perspective, I, I think that that you, you'll you'll do fine. Um, so I think those are the two main things. You have to pay attention inwardly to the group and and make sure that you have set a culture uh, of cooperation and teamwork that's that's consistent and thrives and can grow. And then externally understanding your place in the enterprise and um, and ultimately, you know, you're pulling for the for the end goal. And the end goal is making a difference in the lives of patients. That you know, that is the key metric on which you should judge your work, not not expansion of your group or, um, you know, additional technologies or things like that. I think that's a really great framework. Um, so um, so in industry, um, it's often said that certain projects will become prioritized. Other projects will come deprioritized. And there's somewhat of an ebb and flow uh, within a company, uh, with respect to which projects are um, giving being given the most attention to, um, and as a result, which projects your group is focusing on, um, and I've heard that it can be somewhat frustrating when you're working on one project and you now have to um, transition to another project. Is that something that you've experienced there um, during your time? Uh, in industry? And if so, how do you sort of maintain the morale of the people around you, of your group, to context context switch really quickly onto mm -hmm. a new project? That's a great question. Uh, yeah, um, we experience it. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you some some insight into the Seattle genetics trajectory. So I've, I've been there for uh, over nine years now. When I started, we were a company of 300 people, and I think we are at least 10 times that size now. And so, you know, you can imagine the, the change that occurs, the change in pace, the change in bandwidth. Um, it's it's really it's enormous, uh, and it's super exciting. I, I, I would say that as well. It's it's really exciting. But you know, there there are decisions made, um, and you know, it's, you do have to just, it's, I mean, it's a level of maturity. You have to understand that, that, you know, you know, you may be invested in this and, and this may be something that you are, are really attached to for reasons A, B, and C. But at the end of the day, you know, there is that, there is that ultimate goal of, are you making a difference in the lives of patients, you know, and project priorities are aligned to that goal. And so you need to, you know, understand that, that at the end of the day, that goal is going to override what your, your parochial interest is. Um, the, what, what I try to do to, to keep people from focusing on or becoming overly attached to a particular project or molecule or program or things like that is to try to um, emphasize building enduring um, uh, changes in how we you know, do work in the mass spec group um, that, that, you know, that we can point to as, as like game changers in terms of our efficiency, uh, you know, saving more money, you know, increasing sample throughput, um, providing better depth of analysis in less time. And, you know, those are things that I think people can, can um, point to and, and demonstrate, uh, especially as the, as the value add that they're bringing to their job. And that's something that's directly communicated to people that are not mass spectrometrists. 
And so, you know, that's, that's very easy to, to, to understand. Everybody, everybody understands the importance of doing it better, faster, cheaper, right? And that, that can be fun too. Yeah. So I guess just to sort of wrap things up, uh, we wanted to highlight one more thing. So you were recently the co-chair of the, I'm probably going to butcher it, but um, CASSS Mass Spectrometry Conference Organizing Committee. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wasn't sure if that was the right way to say the acronym. Well, um, we say CAS, but yes, yes, you can also just spell the acronym. <laughs> great. <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, what, what is it like chairing a conference? Obviously, we're very junior. We're years if ever away from ever being in a position to do that so what is it like uh, chairing a conference and how do you sort of choose who's going to be represented at the conference for speakers and yeah so you know the the most conferences i would say um and you know i don't know this to be you know totally true but most conferences have a fairly extensive committee of people drawn from either academia or industry or both and, you know, um, choice of speakers is usually kind of a committee decision. So, um, you know, as a, as a conference chair, you know, you're typically just a member of the committee in terms of like deciding the agenda. Um, you know, I think, um, so yeah, you don't, you, you want, you want, you want the, you want the overall content uh, of the conference to be representative of the best choices amongst all the committee members. And, you know, as a chair, more your role is to, um, is to make sure that, that deadlines and, and milestones in order to get ready for that conference are being, uh, are being met. It's to facilitate discussions uh, amongst the committee and between the committee and the um, conference organizers. The conference organizers play a huge role. And so, you know, I, I I'm I was kind of the chair of the CAS conference, but I sort of take my my marching orders from the program manager, right? So, you know, yeah. <laughs> and and she says, you know, and she she doesn't uh, uh, you know make any choices about the speakers, you know, because that's the committee's job. Um, but and then you know, on the day of the conference, you know, it's um, it usually falls to you to do a lot a fair amount of extra things like. Um, announcing various sessions, you know, keynote, you know, announcing keynote addresses, things like that, opening, opening the conference and kicking it off. Um, you know, it, most, most, I think conference, conference committee chairs are nominated by their peers, which is just the other members on the committee. And, you know, so from there, it's, it's uh, join a conference committee and, um, you know, be a good committee member, be collaborative, you know, be present, be vocal. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all the other things that you normally do to, to be successful. It's the same on a committee. Yeah. And then I guess any last sort of tips for graduate students or early career scientists in particular who might need some help networking at conferences? Posters, you know, um, you know, I, I would say, you know, usually, usually submitting a poster to a conference, you know, is, is a fairly low bar, you know, and, and it's, and it's totally doable. Um, posters generate all kinds of traffic and conversation and, and tremendous, tremendous networking opportunities. So, um, that to me is, is I think the easiest entry level step is just to be active attending conferences and present posters. Um, obviously if you have a, a, a podium talk that that's going to help a lot as well. And, and one podium talk tends to lead to offers, uh, to present at other conferences for, uh, you know, podium talks as well. Thank you, John, so much for sharing your perspectives with us today.
Hey, I really enjoy it. And um, uh, thank you for providing me, I guess, with a forum to just chat with, with you all. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I, I please, I, I would say to anybody, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Um, you know, I've, I have a LinkedIn profile and I can be contacted there. But, um, you know, just, uh, you know, work hard, maintain, you know, and, and, and hone your craft um and follow your passion and uh, i think that you know if you're doing those things then um good things will happen excellent advice <laughs> and thank you for tuning in don't forget to follow hopkins biotech podcast on social media at facebook instagram linkedin or twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes i'm roshan chickermain i'm jenna glatzer Thank you for listening.